Hello, and welcome to ACX Everywhere 2023. I'm Andrew Wilson, and this episode is part two of a series of recorded conversations that occurred at the Washington, D.C. ACX Everywhere 2023 meetup in September. The first conversation you will hear is some attendees having a great talk with Professor Brian Kaplan from George Mason University. Please enjoy. And we're back. And we're back. How do you sound, sir? I'm testing, testing. I ate nothing for breakfast today because I found it's the easiest way to not get fat. Nice. I agree. Except it doesn't work. It's the easiest way to not get fatter for me. <laughs> Check. I can hear. Works for me. Yeah, I'm good. Fun. Awesome. Don't talk. We'll talk about science fiction if you want, but uh, maybe, yeah. Wait till I get back. So we get to pick our own topic. All right. What, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know. Can we talk about Brian Kaplan? Sure. Uh, so, so I missed Kaplan. I was excited to try to go this year, especially since you invited kids. Can you Always do. Yeah. Uh, my kids are, are pretty nerdy <laughs> and I thought they might fit in. I, I had no idea. I've never been, but I thought we'd give it a shot. But can you tell me a little bit about what happened or, or summarize it? Or is it even a sort of thing you can say that about? Absolutely. Uh, Kaplan is the giant annual nerd festival that I run. Basically, it's two days Saturday and Sunday, noon to midnight, and I just do absolute open invitation to all beings in the universe. I tell people, you're invited, your friends are invited, their friends are invited, so on, infinitely recursively. This has never led to a thousand people being at the event, but it's, it's a great chance to meet new people. And part of what we do is play games, but sometimes people just go and make new friends or connect with old friends. We also do karaoke. Sometimes we do sing-alongs. Just like any nerdy thing you can think of is what we do. Nice. What kind of what kind of games? Give me a sample of what was played. See, so I mostly like role playing games. So I ran two whole day role playing games. So I was doing almost only those, besides a few smaller games. So let's see. I did one. These are both original role playing games that I wrote. Nice. The first one is called "It's Your Funeral." It's a horror story where you are at a funeral in French Canada, and then someone or someone's begins killing the people there. So I felt like there's never really been a good horror story at a funeral. So I wrote a horror story at a funeral and you get to play these characters. And then the other one is the most philosophical game I've ever written. It's called Overstep the Limits, which is a quote from the Quran. And you play a group of escape mental patients. And the theme of it really is, what is the dividing line between madness and religion? And Ooh. if you play to the end, you discover what is the dividing line between madness and religion. It's Ooh. fun to do. Yeah, now I'm even more sorry, Miss. That sounds like fun. Yeah, so, well, so there was one shocking event at the game where one of these mental patients is a character named Fembot, who is a woman who believes that she's a robot from the future who's been sent to go and protect her kind from elimination, <laughs> uh, played by... <laughs> Nothing to do with the religious aspect, yes. I think. Yeah. Yes, but anyway, <laughs> the very end of the story, this character managed to go and escape with a or drive away the terrorist truck to go and save a bunch of people and then the bomb exploded and the character needed to roll a 20 on a 20-sided die to live and everyone's leaning over and it happens but then this character had a had a unlocked ship which allowed me to make her re-roll oh, no. and so the character re-rolled and got another 20 and it was at the level of a miracle yeah and it's like this fits perfectly with the theme of the dividing line between madness and religion if you saw this happen in real life which is unlikely but you could yes. would you not think that this was the hand of say a robot from the future right or something worthy of worship yes yes <laughs> right so 
sort of the the climax of the story is can what happened lead to the creation of a new religion right that's cool yeah no definitely you know so i was telling them earlier i read like the sequences and like less wrong and like even overcoming bias before times but i never hung out with the community quote unquote until somewhat recently and i'm super sorry i didn't because making friends is good people should make more friends well a different kind of friends you know the kind of people i meet here i've met before but never in numbers and so it's always like when i find someone like this is like the two of us in the corner nerding out about you know weird things and and you know rationalists or rationalist adjacent type things or weird economic theories that aren't you know the mainstream or whatever and here it's an embarrassment of conversations right on those kinds of topics and and weird games like what you just described. Yep. Instead of, you know, another Monopoly session. Whatever. Oh, yeah. And now, like, some shorter games we played, there's one that I really like called Pitch Storm, where you make up new movies on the spot. <laughs> oh, nice. Right? Where basically you have character cards and plot cards, and they're randomly combined, and then it's basically a round robin where you see who can, who in the whole group can make up the best movie. The best movie or the best pitch for... Like, yes, yes, it is the best pitch for a movie. So your, your, your basic elements handed yes, to you, and you've right. got to come up with a pitch. Yes, right on the spot, and you got 45 seconds, and then... The person that is the judge also has these production note cards, sort of like a typical Hollywood producer ruins your idea by making you go and change it. And then he picks a card and then you have to change your idea on a dime. All right. Uh, Sounds good, but rewrite it for Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) That's exactly what the cards are like. Nice. It's like, you know, great, but we've got 10,000 gallons of fake blood. How can we put them into this children's story? (laughs) How many inside jokes have you created from this? Jeez. games I mean, it's almost all we do sometimes. I mean, the more like, inside jokes, the better it's going. And also yeah. it's funny how like little, how random it can be. And there'll still be like inside joke about it. Yeah. Like with my sons, we just have a slogan, which is pitch storm it. And this is like in, something happens in real life. And it's like, all right. So a nerd goes into Washington, D.C. and he ends up on a podcast. But then right. <laughs> you got 10,000 gallons of blood to deal with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That's great. I. Definitely plan to attend next year yep. and uh, and bring the kids. That sounds cool. Yeah. So what else? What else? You're a pretty busy guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you teach. I do. That does not keep me busy. I've got like a standard tenure professor is too, too low. That's 150 hours a year. You can go and add on grading and tests and so on. But yeah, that's only like 10% of my time. Large majority of my time is spent on what's called research, which once you have tenure is really anything you want to work on equals research. I've got a wide range of projects. So I've got university press books, which are the thing that would most count in academia, but I also do nonfiction graphic novels where I try to take really important academic research and repackage it in a way that someone would actually want to read it. Especially, there's a lot of research that if you really understand how it all connects is important, but no individual piece of research is actually interesting. I try to go and do the synthesis and say, this actually is something that matters and it's important and it speaks to major issues. You wouldn't know that if you just read all the articles. You, know, you need me to go and curate the experience and walk you through and tell you why it actually all matters. Kind of like Tyler Cohen does a similar thing, like synthesizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'd say what he does and what I do is pretty different. I mean, he's more of someone who just gives you a long reading list with commentary. Whereas I try to go and say, here is the annual. And he's big on questions. I'm big on answers. I like answers. 
right? So to me, it's like, okay, questions are great. It's fun. We can talk about it. But if you are going to be a researcher, like your goal is to come up with answers to important questions, not just to ask questions. So I do ask questions too, but all of my books are written because I say I have an, an, an answer to a very important question, or maybe I've got a bunch of answers to a bunch of related important questions. Yeah, that is a big difference between listening to me or Tyler is Tyler often gives the idea that, well, the really wise person realizes that it's just a mistake to think that there are answers of this kind. Footnote, and footnote, except Brian's answers are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, That's like one of our running jokes slash issues is like, I feel like with Tyler, Anyone else in the world, like, like he'll say, like, this person deserves a hearing, but he's never said I deserve a hearing. You're like, hey, I deserve a hearing more than that jackass. <laughs> well, every, every group needs a skeptic, right? Like, yes, yes. Well, what's academia without some tips, right? Yes, yes. Speaking of, so so you mentioned, you know, 100, 150 hours a year teaching. You just wrote an article about this. I did. And I found it super interesting at a meta level uh, because, you know, only a yes. tenured professor could complain about, you know, tenure. Yes, tenure is a total scam is the title. <laughs> yes. I thought it was wonderful. Does this mean that you have plans out, you know, to stop or, or are you going to write no, no, tenure no. all the way yeah, to the sunset? Yeah, like, like, so I will, I have said many times, I will never retire. I consider it insane for a professor to retire. Nice. I mean, like, like sometimes they will go and say, we'll give you three years worth of money if you retire. It's like, I'm going to live more than three years. So no. Yeah. No, and at, yeah, the, yeah. But I mean, at, like, at the end of the article, you did say that if the yes. tenure system was changed, you would gladly yeah. know, suffer the consequences. Yeah, you know, of course, you know, like this is cheap talk because I don't <laughs> think people listen to me. I do hold out this hope. Well, in the unlikely scenario, people did listen to me. There's be some grateful rich person who would endow a chair for me so I can keep doing what I'm doing. But yeah. Worst you, case scenario. Yes. Even if they did officially abolish tenure, I think it's extremely unlikely that they would actually start firing many people for delivering so little value. I mean, this is one of the main things that we see in real world labor markets. While we have the Mr. Burns on the Simpsons stereotype of businesses gleefully firing everyone for the most trivial reasons, the much more common issue in labor markets is retaining people who are incompetent, despite the fact that you could legally get rid of them. And as to why that is, it's a fascinating question. There's a lot of psychology and sociology. Regulation plays a role, but that's not the whole story. Yeah, a lot of it just seems to be that bosses feel a lot of pity for a worker that they would fire. And it's just hard to go and get rid of a person. And once you know their name and the name of their kids, which means that we do wind up keeping a lot of talent in places where it's actually not doing much good. Wait, wait. So you're saying someone who's doing research on a Baudrillard analysis of (laughs) Disneyland, (laughs) that's not adding value to society. I mean, and then telling you, I'd be subtracting value. (laughs) I'm just going to stick my neck out and say, no, it's not. This does bring up, what I think is an interesting point, you said you and Tyler do is pretty different. And I agree at the level you described that it's different. But at a, at a higher level, I think there's a lot of what you guys do in common, which is, so I kind of have this uh, this view of sort of, you know, topics, right, that mm-hmm. you, you slice up reality yeah. into slices. And one thing you guys can do, and I think um, in general, you know, econom- economics, when it's well done, is a tool for doing what I'm about to describe, which is, you know, slice up knowledge differently mm-hmm. than how it's naturally sliced. Mm-hmm. And so you can cut across. Or conventionally. Conventionally, conventionally sliced, done. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and so you can, you know, join two, quote unquote, distinct fields of knowledge mm-hmm. together in some analysis. Mm-hmm. And what you just, you just went through, psychology, you know, what the explanation for why unproductive workers aren't fired, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a, what's the word? A multidisciplinary. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Would you agree you both do that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. Like you do. 
So yeah, I mean, it's obviously like compared to just a random economist, we are super alike. You know, we both write books, which is weird for economists. We both blog, which is weird for economists. I was just hanging out with Tyler and he realized, you know, Brian, I think I've had more lunches with you in my life than any other human being. They're like, yeah, okay. So I've had more lunches with Robin with Tyler, but I'm still totally believable that Tyler's had more lunches with me than he has with any other person. So yeah, so like, you know, like he's my big brother. We're very simpatico. And yet at the same time, if, like if you just go and look at the substance of what we're doing, it is quite different because like I am, like I, I really think of myself, I am an answer man. I am really, I'm struggling to get answers. And once I've got an answer, then I'm fairly stubborn about it. And I say, look, I thought about this for a long time. I mean, one funny conversation I had with Tyler once is I have this book on parenting and kids. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Brian, it seems like you like your own arguments more than kids themselves. <laughs> and then I just said, you're assuming there's a difference. An argument is a child. <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. I created it out of my own mind. It didn't exist. And I made it. And now it's there. And I love this argument so very much. It's beautiful. Okay. Well, let me try to make you sad. So, sorry He's done this before. Okay, so, well, uh, so go back to wherever we need to. Oh, arguments as children, because it's yes. a beautiful thing, right? So here, let me break your heart a little bit. What's the time when you made an argument, you loved it, you loved the conclusion, and you had to change it? Because, you know, the see. truth counts too, right? Yeah, of course. Let's see. Mm. I mean, it happened more when I was young, when I was repeating other people's arguments and then realizing they're wrong. So I was a big Ayn Rand fan and I repeated a bunch of her arguments <laughs> and then realized, wow, these like, there's, not only is it wrong, it's wrong at every step. So it's like, like really a really flawed argument. Like the, she's got her, how to derive an is from an odd and the objectivist ethics, which I really liked. She like, and like, honestly, she's like, well, it's this or nothing. So it can't be nothing. So it's gotta be this. And that's really the best that I had there. And when I had to learn more, it's like, no, it's not really this or nothing. There's actually plenty of better stuff out there. Yep. Let's see. In terms of other things that I've changed my mind on, let's see. All right. I assure you that has happened. <laughs> let's see. It's one where thinking about them in particular. Let's see. There's some good ones. Let's see. I mean, I also, so I do have a whole essay called Why I'm Not an Austrian Economist. This is one where I thought the, the arguments were definitely better, but still in the end wrong. But again, these were not so much my arguments as arguments that I learned from other people, thought they were right, Expl you know, spent a lot of energy explaining to people, trying to convince them of them, and then saying, oh, wait, actually, this is not only wrong, it's really absurd. Uh, for example, Austrian economists have this philosophical rejection to probability theory, which I was really into for a while. And then it's like, so I can't say there's a 13% chance. Yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. do you mean? What do you mean? I can't say I, there's a 13% chance, so that's meaningless. It seems highly meaningful, actually, to say there's a 13% chance. Yeah, but you don't have to throw away all of Austrian economics, yes. right? Because of something like that. Uh, you don't. But um, what I like, what I say in that essay is that the really fundamental differences between Austrian economics and regular economics, the regular economists are right. Or if they're not, then it's psychology and economics that's right, not Austrians. Mm. So it's true that rational expectations models, standard and neoclassical economics have a lot of problems, but it's not true that the Austrians have figured out anything wrong with them. What's really wrong with them is empirical psychologists have shown that isn't how people actually think. It's like, okay, that's what's wrong. The problem is you can't talk about probability. The problem is the probabilities are poor, poorly constructed probabilities. So I'll betray my ignorance here. Thought, one thing I still believe from the Austrian mm -hmm. stuff is the sort of Hayekian, uh, you know, distributed knowledge, right? right. The knowledge problem. Is, that's not Austrian? What I would say is if you went and explained that to almost any normal economist, they'd say, yeah, yeah, of course, Doc. I got it. Okay. Right. Now, you might go and fault, why don't you go and tell your students about it and give them a three-hour lecture on it? 
why do you go and spend so much more time on how we handle GDPs, depreciation of GDP, mm-hmm. something that is of not really of any importance for anything. And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, that's how it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, like you might criticize them for going and not giving it the proper level of attention. That's different from saying it's wrong, which I think get very few economists would say that it's wrong. Uh, There you go. I learned something. Awesome. I'm going to go back and get a drink. Maybe someone else wants to join in. Good times. On the arguments as uh, as children analogy, (laughs) can you think of a good example of where one of them grew up and surprised (laughs) you and flew the nest in a way that you didn't expect? Okay. Yeah. So probably one of the better examples of that is I've put a lot of effort into betting and talking about the value of betting. Um, so you know, the idea that you know a person may go and make a claim, which sounds which was they seem to believe very deeply, then you offer to bet them and suddenly they back away from it. But while I've done a lot of individual bets, I haven't really done anything with betting markets, but there are some people that I have influenced and inspired who have gone and done a lot more than I ever have with the idea. So that would be one example. So like Actually, I saw someone here with the Manifold Markets t-shirt. So I don't know that I was the influence there, but I definitely know some people that do some stuff with them or I was an influence on them. And they've just done a lot more than I ever did. Uh, So that would be one example. Let's see. I mean, I also have friends who have done education startups that they say are influenced by my book, The Case Against Education, which... And that's the kind of thing I'm really glad this is happening and being done by someone other than me because it just sounds like it's very laborious, <laughs> like running a startup. I have managed small projects and like every time I do it, my idea is not, if only I could manage a bigger project, wouldn't that be really fun? It's like, no, this was really like pulling teeth as it was. I don't want to get a bigger project. Yeah, but what, uh, on betting markets specifically, what, what about that has surprised you? Get really close and yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, oh God. No, I want to get this question. Yeah, just speak. Yeah, just sorry. Just yeah. Sorry. So uh, there we go. What about the betting markets has surprised you? See, since I started working on this, and you know, like, so I mean, I started working on this years before Tetlock Super Forecasting came out. So there's a lot of new stuff in there. Uh, just things about the productivity of betting teams, the idea you know, like well, just demonstrating that there really is such a thing as actual predictive ability, such that people who win in one round of a competition have a greatly elevated chance of winning in later rounds of the competition. The idea that people who are generalists actually wind up doing as well, even in specialized areas as specialists. The people who that have the best overall record are just people who have high levels of general knowledge. The idea that people who are numerate just do better. Uh, also, sort of like some of the finer ground brain things, um, like one result is the people who give less rounded numbers for the probabilities are in fact more accurate. It's not just the illusion, oh, I 73.1 because I'm so cool, but people who give those numbers in fact are cooler in the sense of yeah. having their finger more on the pulse of reality. At every level, I've seen essentially any level of rounding that you would impose yeah. strips away some precision. Yeah, I mean, it might be that once you hear that, then you will start pretending to yourself that you've got better knowledge by giving pseudo-precise probabilities. But at least before we mess things up, perhaps, like this was a signal of someone actually being better. I mean, obviously, like there's a big difference in someone who gives numbers and someone says, oh, it's quite likely. It's like, what the hell does that mean? It's quite likely. Uh, There's a great part in super forecasting where 
he's talking about Obama deciding whether or not to go and and order the strike on the place in Pakistan where they thought that Osama bin Laden was. And then he hears, hears a bunch of people. And then at the end, Obama says, so it's a guessing thing. And I'm like, oh, man, like that guy had that kind of power. It's the level of sophistication where you hear a bunch of people giving estimates and then you just go, oh, so it's a guessing thing. It's like, dude, everything's a guessing thing. Everything. There's guessing at the 99 percent level There's guessing at the 2 percent level, but it's all guessing. On that note, what do you think of um, one of I know they weren't the first to do it, but they were. Manifold was one of the first to popularize having people make their own prediction markets, ask questions they themselves would resolve. Hmm. Do you see that as useful? Yeah, it's really cool. I will admit I haven't taken advantage of it. Mostly, I'll just say that I tend to focus on a small number of projects. And after that, I just say, like, I just don't want to get distracted by anything else. So that's, but like in terms of it, I think it's great that other people do it. The closest thing I do to that is I do a lot of weird Twitter polls, but mostly just based upon, I'm curious, like what in the world would people even say to this thing? Right? Like just last week, I was just curious about the question, how meaningful do people even consider the question who started the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And I was, I was shocked by the answer actually, because I was expecting that almost everyone would say either Israelis or Palestinians. And first of all, people like, we're much more willing just to blame the UK, which perfect. Yes, which is, does which does indicate a deeper level of knowledge than I was attributing to most people. It's like Sykes Picot. Uh, yes, <laughs> but then here's the thing. Like so, you know, like but then I also gave the the option. This is this you know the question you know, a meaningless question, and that was about fifty percent of the answer. Respondent said it's a meaningless question to say who started the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then it was like ten percent Israelis, ten percent Palestinians, and then and then we'd say like twelve and a half percent Israelis, twelve and a half percent Palestinians, twenty five percent British, something like that. So I'm like, huh? We could so, so people the French a bit. Yeah, people regard. <laughs> but then here, then and then I saw that and like weird, okay. And then I said, okay, how about for like World War II? And for World War II, it's like ninety percent Germany caused it. It's and almost, almost no one said it was a meaningless question same thing for the you know that was for the european theater in world war ii pacific theater in world war ii almost everyone definitely japan the answer it's not a meaningless question and I'm like so then what's the difference between when it's meaningless and when it's not and it's like well like if it's been going on for a really long time it kind of becomes meaningless i mean this is one where it's like can you say that the Israelis were there first, and therefore the Palestinians are invaders, even though then, like a thousand years later, it was the other way around. And it's like, well, even the Bible says the Israelis kicked out the previous people, the Canaanites, so what about that? So maybe that's what was going on. But, I mean, I, I was actually quite surprised by that. It did get me thinking, like, where do people even get the run line? And particularly it was about, like, who started it? Who started it? Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here Great. with a specific calibration question. Earlier today, one of our meetup attendees in there posted the following question to Manifold Markets. If I adopt a shy cat that hides from humans, will it become friendly within six months? Now, as a proper rationalist, friendly is defined as <laughs> the cat seeking out petting and voluntarily sits on at least one human's lap <laughs> within that six-month period. When I met the and it only cat, has to do it once. It only has to do it once, but... You don't uh, know the age of the cat. The cat is 13 months old, and when this cat was first encountered, it was hiding under blankets. We got what a, a six months. would you put on this cat becoming friendly? Like, only 20%. Oh, we have interesting disagreement. The current market is trading at 78%. All right. I mean, I so I have... 
owned two cats in my life as a kid. So I feel like I've got some sense of what cats are like through like years of firsthand experience. It was only two cats. I mean, you know, like I, given that the consensus answer is higher, I'd probably go up to like 35 just based upon that. But that's where I think that's about where I would stop. Um, I mean, especially the, the age of the cat is important. 13 months to me. So I like, I've seen how much cats change over like in my firsthand experience. And I'd say like kittens change a lot, but like by the time the cat's a year old, the cat's pretty set in its ways. Yeah. The only big you know, personality change, so like my, the main cat I had as a child did have one major personality change after it got in a fight with another cat and it got its tail paralyzed. And then we actually had been planning on neutering the cat and then we just did a double surgery of neutering and tail amputation and the cat was never the same. <laughs> the cat was bitter after that, as, per <laughs> as perhaps most mammals would be. So there was That's that a nasty uh, one too. I, I think that cat, I'm trying to remember. I think the cat was maybe two and a half years old at the time, but the cat was never fun to be around ever again. I like your, uh, your specifics on the, on the manifold. This is uh, this is awesome. <laughs> also, I like 35. I think 70 is very, very high or something. Didn't you? Yeah. It's currently trading at 78%. Yeah, I mean, I would weight the cat owners experience much more highly. I mean, they, they, they would say cat owners, they do have a bias. There's a pro cat bias, obviously, mm -hmm. but still, I think that the intimate firsthand knowledge of with cats is going to trump just being pro cat. So I've been bitten by several cats, <laughs> the yeah. extent of my experience, uh, but I took the over on this, at least when it was training at, at even on the grounds that cats are fickle creatures. And mm -hmm. if it only needs to seek out a lap once then that's probably likely to happen by random chance alone. Uh, yeah, I mean, so so like that, and it's, it's very clear specified, it just to be one time total. It's not that there right. has to be one person that it's comfortable doing it with. But there's something about yes. petting as well? Yes, it's to, to tolerate. Yeah. Also tolerate I petting? Was, I believe it was an or. Oh, it was an or. Friendly, mm -hmm. means, yeah. right. friendly means that the cat seeks out petting. Oh, no, and okay. voluntarily yeah. sits on at least one human's lap. Yes. Does it have to seek out petting from the same yes. person? On the lap? Yeah. It does not. Those are separate. Yes. Although, again, like even on the reading, must voluntarily see it once person's lap. It's that's ambiguous between does it once and does it habitually. I kind of, I guess, mm -hmm. I was kind of thinking more habitually, but and the petting real really sounds habitual, doesn't it? Voluntarily seeks out petting, petting that that you know that sounds sort of not like a, a pet. Yes, yes a, a pet. Singular. Yes, it sounds like a you know, like singularized plural. Mm. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. at least how I would think of it. But and if the cat grew up on the street ish. I mean, yeah. yeah, negative reinforcement in terms of stimuli, like, because what, like you said, with with the cat being fickle, one lap, it's like, huh, try something new, right? Optimize for novelty. That seems yeah. like a very cat thing. Cats are also sociopathic in my, like, more than dogs for me. That's and, totally true. Right? That's one thing I like about them personally, but I'm I'm low maintenance when it comes to pets. But, but the habitually petting thing, uh, yeah, I think that would be a learned behavior before childhood, right? Maybe in a critical period. So yeah, I think I, I think I I would take I would take yeah thirty five ish between thirty five and fifty, but I don't know. So Andrew, the pressure's on now. You've got to get this episode out quickly. So that oh oh oh, what's so the resolve date? <laughs> so that you so that your listenership can can make money off of this prediction. Oh man, well it's probably a small market, and there might be enough people that listen to this who look at it. Maybe I don't know. I, that, I'm not a stats person, but there probably would be some way to see. <laughs> Do, do if you this think drove... your listeners are biased in one direction or another? Pardon me? Do you think your your listeners are biased in one direction or another? 
Most people don't want to say publicly that they don't like animals. It's just my experience. So the betting is anonymous. So there's there's less social pressure. Yeah. Than oh, I, I, I do the slogan that I only lose. Yes. I do have the slogan that I only lose sleep for animals that share my genes. But <laughs> <laughs> right. there we go. Yeah, technically, all they all do. But you know what I mean. <laughs> no manifold. Yeah. No. I mean, is it reput? I know a little bit about it, but I have not. I've only like talked with people and had them put bets for me. Like you know, just talking with them, like political stuff. We were just talking, and it was a fun thing to do. But on manifold, is it all? I mean, synonymous or? Oh, uh, we're looking at it now. It's all by username. Mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, it's easy to dox people by information patterns these days more than usual. So probably should assume that you're not anonymous. So I didn't know that. That was a good question. All right, do you have experience with Manifold? I don't. Every Manifold bet I've ever heard of has the sort of language lawyering on exactly what the success criteria is. Mm -hmm. And actually, I find that part of it more interesting than, than many of the bets themselves. Why is it so hard to specify something precisely here? Pets Sam, you're in the right town. <laughs> <laughs> Language falls down in the face of reality. Like that's, I don't know. That's kind of the fetus point of view, but I mean, also like, yeah. I'm an optimist. I yeah, hope we can come perfect. up with a better language. Me I just have oh, no right? idea how to, how to do it. The culture did it. I mean, they did it in the culture novels. Why can't we do it? <laughs> I mean, what's really striking is that when you look at the laws that are passed in DC, they are so deliberately vague. I mean, if you have things like, you know, you may not do anything which would tend to monopolize a market. Right. Boom. So you know what to do now. It's like it's offering a good product. Something would tend to monopolize. Literally, of course, like, like what could be a clearer cut case of something that would tend to monopolize as being awesome. But fortunately, the law has been not that crazy. <coughs> so it may be that there's a strong incentive to write something that uh, sounds good to many ears and mm -hmm. therefore is ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it gives you an idea about how much of what get passed in Washington is not about accomplishing anything. It's about making a symbolic stand and then saying, yeah, let some to totally other people that are not even yet born decide what these words mean. I've done my job. Like that's your job. Your job is to go and vomit forth some empty verbiage on a page and then give an, a grant of power to unknown people decades hence. That's what you're doing. Like, yep. Yeah, I, mean, I was by, reading. By the way, just to, just to plug Richard Nenya's book, The Origins of Woke, that's what you discover happened with U.S. civil rights law. It's like if you told people at the time that you're not, you're going, you could get sued for misgendering someone uh, because of these laws, and people would be like, "What the hell are you talking about? What is that?" And no, that's not what it says. And it's like it doesn't say much of anything, which means it could mean anything. So yeah, so defecting a competitive advantage, right? It's kind of. Yeah, the, the tragedy of the commons. I mean, is that maybe probably an oversimplification? But I don't know. Okay, I was talking with someone else about this too. Just completely tangent on this. You think if we went more like Singapore and actually paid more in terms of competing for the type of talent that would be running like a multi-billion dollar company or something like that. I mean, Americans were like, oh, you know, like something, something honor, like duty, like all of this, they should do it. You know, people should. But then I don't th I think everyone who would think about doing that themselves, like if we paid two or three times as much, you know, I think Singapore is something. Yeah. And then millions million something for a CEO and high things. I'm, I was just yeah, curious bureau, about for like a bureau head. Yeah. yeah. The only way I think you can get the values if you did selection by standardized test scores or objective metrics. Otherwise, we would just get a more yeah. frenzy competition to, for, for demagoguery, which is what we got here. And of course, part and parcel demagoguery is saying we're not going to use standardized testing because they don't mean anything and everyone's equally intelligent. Yes. I think it is, it is meaningful, though, that when, when 
someone thinking of running for Congress would be taking a pay cut to do so. That does limit competition to... It reduces the competition, does it? But in terms of selection, what is it? What's the difference? I mean, there, there is this old story that actually if you have, like if you don't pay politicians, then the only people do it, who are going to do it are going to be super successful people who already made their fortune in some other thing. And it's like, hmm. That sounds like a pretty good kind of person, actually. I mean, better than someone whose whole dream is to be a professional vomiter of words up for a fourth on a page. I feel like we ran that experiment recently to mixed results. See what, just Trump or what? Yes. Yes. I'm going to say that one example in an experiment, you want to have a lot of data. Fair. Different story. I mean, I definitely say that the states where you have part-time legislators with low pay it does seem that gives them smaller governments. If you think that's a good idea, then I think that is a good system for getting it. So if you go and compare Texas, where I think basically the legislators are only in the Capitol for three months every two years, and they get paid like a, a token amount of money. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I used to know how much it was, but it's not much. And, and then that means that you just don't have much time or energy being put into creating new legislation. Which, again, you might say, well, it could be new legislation to improve things. Or it could be, but won't be. So, yeah, better just that you have people do it just to go as a feather in their cap, and they show up for three months, and nothing much gets done, and then they go home and get back to drilling oil. And then there's something that maybe is a workaround for this, that California, I mean, I'm, California has a lot of problems. I'm from California, so Me I too. love California, right? I love California, and also- I don't. There you go. <laughs> I still live there. So, yeah, I am eating my own dog food on the- Shame on California. Shame. If this was Game of Thrones, I'd be beating the bell. Shame, shame. <laughs> there we go. And also, in terms of memetic propagation, right, there are, I think it's- 10 to 14 states where lockstep laws, right? Where California does something and they kind of have these things in place where they're automatically adopted, adopted by that particular state. I mean, it seems like a hack to me, like, but also then you really, it's a trust problem, right? You really have to trust. <laughs> and is California the one to trust on this? Like, I mean, oh. I, yeah, there we go. See, I'm also skeptical on this, but also you see it in the, in the world. So I don't know. It's a lovely state home to some incredible industries, which are then bled dry by the parasites who run the state. Yeah, it's getting, yes, I live close to San Francisco and it's, yeah, the Hobbesian, <laughs> the Leviathan was lacking and you definitely saw that and, you know, companies leaving town and yeah, a lot of horrible stories, like people I personally know, not just the, you know, apocryphal, crazy stories. I, but. I am enough of an economist to say it can't be a true hellscape until the prices of housing are low. Right. Uh -huh. And of course, I also know as economists, well, you can get prices high by, by just by restricting supply, yeah. but you couldn't do that in the middle of Siberia. You have to start with something good and then restrict it. You can't just completely suck and then restrict supply and expect that people pay a lot. People to say, well, I don't need to live in the middle of Siberia. So no. So like they, they definitely have something good there. Obviously, a lot of it is just weather, which is something else that the state takes advantage of is people love this weather. Therefore, they are less likely to leave and we can go and squeeze them till it hurts. Sorry, sterilization practices. What do we know about the efficacy of the sterilization? That's probably mostly for looks and for comfort, but it is. Right. Like, I mean, I guess I could believe that you could get bacteria from an ear infection from wearing headphones. Yeah, yeah. hair and stuff. Like, I don't know. I grew up in, I worked in restaurants a long time and it's just like shibola. Like, I don't know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, All right. Ride's about to go. So how about one last question? Oh, a new person then. <laughs> You have a question <laughs> or you would know how about a science fiction, any science sci-fi recommendations lately or fiction mm -hmm. in general, but potentially, I don't, Wait. I don't know. 
So people generally stereotype me as being a science fiction fanatic. I'm not. Okay. Among science fiction, the kind that is my least favorite is hard sci-fi. Okay. I like space opera. I like stories with rich, hum- a rich tableau of human emotion. I don't care if the spaceships make noise. That None of that matters to me. What I would really recommend to people who are into sci-fi is actually to branch out, and I would branch out to the Russians. The Russians must be read. They are the greatest of all novelists. I don't care what they do to other countries. Their novelists are fantastic. So Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, so you know, like to read War and Peace, uh, read read you know read Anna Karenina. Twenty first century Russian novels. Now nah, I don't read any of those. Like like you know the classics are just so good. And then I also say that. When people say Ayn Rand is a terrible, not terrible novelist, like they're condemning her for the same things that are great in the other great Russian novelists. You know, like, like to say that she sucks is to say that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky suck. One cannot say that. I agree 100% with that. And also now with the judging, like a lot of her characters are sociopaths, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. Russian, like growing up revolution, yeah, like you see yeah. this model, that's who you're probably going to write about. It's mm-hmm. still interesting. Like you don't have to love these people. Yeah. I mean... So let me just end with my experience of reading War and Peace for the first time. Late 30s before I ever read it. And it took me about three months to read the first 300 pages. I'm like, all right, this is pretty good. It's better than I was thinking. And then it took me about one month to read the next 300 pages. Then it took me about a week to go and read the next 300 pages. And then the last 300 pages, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to Pierre? What's happening? Oh, my God. This is so gripping. This is, like, the best thing I've ever read. It's incredible. And then I so like I was done, like, on, like in just, like, days for, for the last few hundred pages. So, like, just doing it nonstop. So I've read that, like, three times cover to cover. And it's just like an incredible story, like on so many levels. You know, Tolstoy, I like to say he's like an entomologist of human beings. He has the patience to classify human beings into so many categories, whereas almost every other novelist would say, well, she was an old lady. And, you know, Tolstoy would say, there's seven different teen ki- 17 different kinds of old ladies. This kind was, she was number 13 and gives you the details. This is the kind that would try to assist every young man in finding the right wife, but would serve the worst food. And, and that's a kind. And, and when you're reading, like it's like this is like about written like 150 years ago about 200 years ago you know about a a time 200 years ago and it still resonates like i know that woman oh my god tolstoy you're a genius so that's how i feel and that's what i would tell sci-fi people like when you read that i think it is like it might spoil sci-fi because like now i know what real character development is what real writing emotions are ouch yeah like so much sci-fi is just about how the spaceship. Well, that's spins. true. Like, yeah, no, a lot hey. of it's bad. No, I. But but you, a sci-fi person who got stuck on the first three hundred pages of War and Peace, you're looking at it. So no, right. now I'm gonna, like, like it's it's totally worth it. It's so, I'm down. So I like Dostoevsky, and so yeah, yeah Brothers Karma was offense okay. amazing, and like ap- like yeah, it's kind of the the moral. Ivan's question for me, very important. But anyway, okay. you're. But thank you so much, right. man. It's been really, really great. It's been awesome. So definitely send me the URL. Absolutely, right. you will. You will get it. All right, bye bye. <laughs> How you doing? The luminaries left. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, they were both really good sports, so that was cool. I didn't talk about economics with either one of them. Did you want to? Yes and no. So we were talking about vaccines a second ago. I might be in a malaria challenge trial. Oh, awesome. Yeah. You know, assuming I don't go to France, which is looking increasingly unlikely. Can you say more about this, this trial? Also, we're... Yeah, we're here with some new people. We can't introduce ourselves, pseudonym or not, or else we can just roll into it. There is no right answer. Whatever we want. I think we're rolling into it. Done. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go into malaria challenge? Right? Yeah. So I'm Kayla, and I feel like people 
who are likely to be listening to this know what a challenge trial is. They're, they're testing a new antibody treatment for malaria, which has been extremely effective in the phase one trial. So they, you know, they give you the antibody and then they put a box of mosquitoes on your arm and let them bite you. There's <laughs> sterile lab-grown mosquitoes who, that officially only have malaria, so they're relatively safe. <laughs> awesome. Is there a control group that gets, that gets non-malaria mosquitoes? <laughs> no. The control group doesn't get the antibodies. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty hardcore. Do you know which group you're going to be in? Well, so there's a 7 out of 37% chance of being in the placebo. Wow. So I probably get the antibodies. Cool. That's, that's great, though. You know, that's heroic of you, like helping out with this. I mean, these challenge trials are so much more effective yeah. than traditional methods of just putting out the vaccine and hoping it works. So just 37 people is going to be able to do a lot of work. You're one of them. I don't think it's that dangerous, though, because you know how no. the IRBs work. Yeah. They'll yeah. treat my malaria. Yeah. Oh, well, how long until they start treating it if you get the placebo? Mm. Well, I have to come in like every day for 10 days to get tested for malaria. So they'll figure it out pretty quick. Awesome. Okay. They can knock it out. Yeah. Just purge. Sometimes, and this is a cool thing too, because I mean, I've taken anti-malaria drugs and it is not fun. Like it. Okay. Tell me about your experience with malaria. I didn't have it. I just took the drugs. Like, no, literally you just the drug. Yeah. Just the preventative stuff when you take, like when I was in, yeah, Southeast Asia. Yeah. No, taking it in some high risk areas, like it knocks you out. Like you are not feeling great. There's a huge, I mean, for me, the, the key on this then is that you're going to have less people taking it. Right. And so it's less preventative. You're going to have problems with it because no, I'll, I'll just confess that I did stop taking it after, before I left the area because I was, I was not willing to pay the, the cost in terms of quality of life with it. Maybe I had a bad experience, but but again, back to this being potentially very, very high leverage. <laughs> so I actually looked into this at one point because there is an anti-malaria drug that people have a negative reaction to. It can cause psychosis. Wow. And I was looking into this as a possible defense client who had killed someone in the Middle East. Damn. But, yeah. Fair enough. It's... God, I hope I didn't take that one. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you would have noticed by now. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Have you killed anybody? <laughs> I have. I am. I am nonviolent. No. I haven't even gotten to a fight since this, the sixth grade, actually. So try to avoid that. But, but you saying looking into this for a client, so it sounds like it didn't pan out or decided not to defend the client. You can't just, you can't just start off in the middle of the floor <laughs> like that. That's like, that's incredible. Well, so... No, it was not plausible that he had taken this type of malaria drug. Mm -hmm. And also, he wasn't crazy. It was just... Mental illness is a thing people sometimes come up with to justify pardons for crimes. Mm. But it doesn't always apply. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, for the... If you're the defense attorney and it, like, is convincing to the jury, then, you know, don't you, like, have to try your best and maybe, uh, you know, see if it works out? I don't know. Well, that's a complicated issue. I was not the defense attorney. It was just a post-conviction pardon thing. Oh. So. so. On appeal? Yeah. Would that have been convincing to you if you were on the jury? I mean, no. But <laughs> I, I, I've been on a jury before, and the stuff people found convincing just, like, blew my mind. Like, uh, there were a few people who were just, like, checked out and did not... <laughs> Seem to be 
doing a great job. Whereas other people were like very, very on the ball and impressive. So, I mean, you just have to get, you know, one or two and you can have a pretty substantial impact. So what kind of trial was it? Oh, I'm not sure I should say. I'm not sure I should say. It was, it was, it was, it was something. (laughs) It was that prominent. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, Mary and Barry's trial, was it? No, no, no. (laughs) So, 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 you know, Mary and Barry, if you don't know, was, was the mayor of DC who got caught doing crack on a FBI sting, but was a very popular mayor. And, and he was, he went to, to trial because he was charged with, with like 13 counts or something. And there are people on the trial and the jury who refused to, to, to acquit him. And there are people on the jury who refused to convict him. Mm. So, so eventually they reach a compromise where they, they convicted him on one of the 13, 13 charges and acquitted him on the rest. And the judge gave him the maximum sentence he could possibly could. Because he said, you know, from the evidence, he was obviously guilty of all 13. Yeah. Wow. Do you, do you happen to know what that max sentence was or how big it, a difference like it was from the middle? years in prison, I think. Wow, that's, that's pretty substantial. Yeah. Not, not, not according to, not, not by American standards. Hmm. Okay. So, Andre, I have my first jury duty in two weeks. What, uh, what advice would you give for being on a prominent world-leading jury oh geez uh don't uh don't get selected how did you get selected that's no fun (laughs) i get selected um yeah i uh uh i'm not sure i'm not sure i want to say sorry i'm surprised you didn't clearly have some brilliant method that you don't (laughs) want to tell us yeah uh, something like that interesting so if i don't want to be on this jury I should just be very honest. I mean, that could backfire. <laughs> be very much yourself and explain how you're an expert in thinking and everyone else should listen to you. And really, there's no point in having anyone else on the jury. It should just be you. Oh, no, we want to avoid groupthink. <laughs> so I've never been on a jury before, but I got called into to, you know, call into the courthouse every day for a week. I did. They never chose me, but I told my physics professor I might be missing class. And the physics first reaction was the physics professor thought that was awful, that it could ruin my career if I got onto a lengthy trial, which, you know, I laughed. Now, I didn't laugh in his face, but I sort of wanted to. Uh, and, and the second thing he said was, was just, you know, he told a story about a physics professor who was called into jury duty. And he said, you know, one of the lawyers asked, so, 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 you really care about the exact definitions and wordings of things, don't you? And he answered yes, and he wasn't chosen for the jury. So that was his advice. Hmm. That seems problematic. I do actually want to judge people. Hmm. So I should be very milk toast. Inconspicuous. Hmm. Mario, we're talking about jury duties and how the superior uh, predictive capabilities and reasoning skills of rationalists make us naturally suited for this job. You're shaking your head. You disagree. Oh, maybe suited for the job, depending on the outcome you're looking for. The people choosing the jurors probably have a different idea <laughs> of what outcome they want compared to uh, a rationalist. 
they're not they're not so much interested by design neither party in a trial is nor should be but theory goes interested in the truth the truth is a byproduct in theory right or am i wrong that's my I, understanding my understanding is is that 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 all officers of the court and lawyers who are past the bar are officers of the court are supposed to be interested in the truth really and and yeah you have there's a professional requirement to give a jealous defense of your client but under most circumstances you know if you if you think an argument is 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 is, is wrong you should not be you know the professional standards is you should not be making it well i i think you can i think i disagree if you think your client is guilty but you're the defense attorney you should still make arguments that might lead the jury to conclude they're not guilty that's that's you know I'm just reporting what, what I've been told by, by law firms. Well, so you're not supposed to make false representations to the court, but something like, I know you're on trial for murder, but what if this other guy did it? Isn't there evidence suggesting the other guy did it? You could say that even if you don't really think the other guy did it. Yeah, but you're saying that there is evidence that the other guy did it. That would be a true statement. Yeah, assuming that's true. You can say there's uh, evidence that leads the Yeah, but, but, you know, the goal ultimate you know, yeah ideal sense all lawyers are supposed to be striving for the truth yeah i don't i don't think so i think i think the design it's an adversarial system and i think the 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 theory is that the truth you know emerges from the adversarial interaction uh and and the idea is that like even in theory you understand that this is, doesn't always work but the idea is that it's going to work better and more often than some other sort of high-minded pursuit of the truth, like the kind of thing a rationalist would pursue, like some sort of quote-unquote objective pursuit of the truth. Because no matter what you define that as, there's always going to be some sort of, I don't know, what would you call this system? Truth-searching system? Well, well there's going to be a post-truth-searching system discord. <laughs> yeah, the adversarial system yeah. is contracted with the magisterial system, which a lot of the world, none of, you know, most of the non-English-speaking world uses, where you have the magistrate, you know, the judge... You know, you know, taking a more active role. And, you know, the different parties are represented by by counsel, but the judge takes a more active role in getting to the truth rather than letting sitting back and letting the lawyers argue it out. Um, well, is it is is the jury play the role of you know the finders of fact? Right, they're the ones who decide what's true based on the adversarial back and forth. And and the adversarial system, in, well, in the American system at least, yeah. The, the juror, whether it's a jury or a judge, you know, is mm -hmm. supposed to, 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 to find, you know, the judge is supposed to find matters of law. The jury or the judge who's ever, right. you know, is, is the juror is supposed to find the matters of fact. Yep. And, you know, you're right in an adversarial system, both sides make, make a, make a gel, you know, zealous argument in favor of their client. Yeah. Your, your interpretation is true, but at the same time, Lawyers are supposed to be interested in the truth, so it's messy. Yeah, I, other, I agree it's messy. The other thing that goes into thinking like a lawyer is you are thinking about the truth, but as it fits into very precise legal definitions. <laughs> so I think you were talking about very and very. You, it is not enough to conclude that the defendant is a bad guy who did something bad. You're supposed to be thinking about whether his behavior fits into the precise definition of the crime. Mm-hmm. And, but oftentimes juries don't really do that. They think 
I think he's bad, but not as bad as this charge. Let's compromise right. on a lesser charge. And so you get things like involuntary manslaughter when the behavior was clearly voluntary because it's just a compromise. Yep. Sounds like somebody's going to need a lawyer. Yeah. Sounds like somebody needs a lawyer. Hmm. I wonder how much of that gets picked up on these directional mics. I don't know. Well, one of them's pointed right towards the street. That's true. Yeah, it sucks because unlike most of rationalists sort of do with their powers or whatever, you know, like most of the truth seeking that rationalists do, you know, the very nature of a jury trial is coercive. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the incentives are so strong. I wouldn't trust myself to be perfectly honest. Like if my kid was on trial, I am morally certain I would lie my ass off and throw to, you know, flush truth down the toilet, you know, if. If I thought he was getting a raw deal. And so I think, I don't think you can depend on any of the parties, you know, impartiality, including the, I think it's a mistake. I think, you know, the purpose of a lawyer is to give the defendant a, you know, a, a good argumentation, not to have them say things that they wouldn't have said otherwise, but just to have them say those things that they would have said in a smarter, more effective way or whatever. What they, defense they would have given themselves if they had, right the training um so so of course my lawyer should uh give my you know flush truth right down the toilet if my kids you know well-being is at stake right and i think that's right and proper but it doesn't me it doesn't make me or my lawyer a proponent for the truth right and so then you've got the adversarial thing which is like well it's the best we can do and then you've got the judge to kind of keep things moving according to the rules that we think will make this adversarial process lead to the truth. And then you've got the jury that kind of, which sometimes the jury is the same person, right? As the judge, mm -hmm. but um, who kind of decides what the actual truth is based on the arguments and so forth. And, you know, I don't think, uh, I think you're right when you said it was messy. I don't see how it can be otherwise. Here's a case I was reading about. So a guy's wife dies in a freak accident by being crushed under a car when they're trying to change a tire. Uh, he collects on a large life insurance policy on her. Some years pass and he gets married again. His wife almost dies in a freak accident when a piece of lumber falls or is thrown off a deck and hits her in the head. Then, sometime later, they go on a hike in a no doubt beautiful national park and she mysteriously falls off a cliff and he collects on a large life insurance policy. Uh, he's tried for murder. The question is, should the first wife's death and the incident where his second wife is injured be admitted in evidence in trial for her death? Does that make sense? In other words, he's not right. on trial for the first wife's death, but can that be admitted into evidence? Well, I can, can speak with somebody who has knowledge about math. Not, I don't have enough knowledge <laughs> about the law, but but you know, with with you know millions, you know tens of millions, hundreds of millions of marriages, you're gonna get you can get these these free you know, unlikely situations happening just by chance. So, you know, the, the freak on, you know, thing that happens that's, that's tragic is going to get, is going to get more scrutiny than somebody's ordinary life that not, nothing freaky happens. It is Bayesian evidence though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah. it certainly counts as Bayesian evidence. I don't know the law to say whether it's admissible in court, but in terms of trying to come to the truth, I think undoubtedly you need to take it into account, right? But you, but you can't, you know, you know, 
take dude the probability and say there's 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 a one hundred thousand chance of this happening because if there's a one hundred thousand chance of it happening, we should expect it to happen hundreds of times. Yep. Well, so. Your argument would go to let's not convict the guy just based on the unlikelihood of a f- series of freak accidents. But should that evidence be admissible before the jury at all? Once again, I, I don't know the law well enough to really opine so, on it. So, so butchering probably all the legal concepts, but isn't would be called circumstantial evidence, which shouldn't be enough to convict, but should be should be admissible in terms of coloring. Any non-circumstantial evidence? Circumstantial evidence is absolutely enough to convict. Oh, yeah? Even just on circumstantial? Okay. It's got to be, like, kind of overwhelming, though? Like, you can't be like, it seems unlikely this guy's going to jail, right? Well, the son, you know, I watch a a, a, a lawyer on YouTube, and (laughs) and he's fond of saying, or was fond of saying when this was a big issue in the news, that sometimes circumstantial evidence can be more compelling than non-circumstantial evidence. It can be. So what would be non-circumstantial, like eyewitness testimony, which we all know has problems? Yeah, or like a, a big... guy admitting that he killed his wife. A confession, which also has problems. Like physical evidence, right? Like, um, I don't know, uh, you know, his boot footprints, you know, going off over the side. I don't know. Where it looks like there was a scuffle, you mm-hmm. know, on the... I don't know what kind of evidence it would... Some kind of physical evidence, right? That's consistent with him pushing her off, but not with him trying to chase after her after it happens, right? After she fell. Something something not, right? Physical evidence? I don't know. I might call that circumstantial. But it might be circumstantial as well. Circumstantial evidence is even a defined legal term. It's just something we used to talk about. Like mostly on TV? Yeah. Maybe so. That is where I've got most of my legal training. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I, my instinct is to say, yeah, it should be admissible. Do you know what the truth was or what was found in that case? Yeah, so the standard is it has to be relevant. So if you were convicted of a completely different crime and then you're charged with something completely unrelated, that probably would not be viewed as relevant. Uh, But in this case, there seemed to be a pattern of behavior. And then the judge will basically assess, is it more prejudicial than probative? Which is kind of subjective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this case, it was admitted. But I haven't gone into all the details, but there was other evidence besides the series of freak accidents that led to this guy's conviction right yeah that freak accidents might not be enough yeah shouldn't be enough it sounds like there's a case to ben's point involving sudden infant deaths in england (laughs) and the evidence was almost entirely how unlikely it was that this was to happen by chance but that conviction was reversed which i think was correct Mm mm-hmm we we need we need just to to send more lawyers. We need we need more more uh, lawyers to do, do the pre law in math. Yeah, get a degree in statistics and then go to law school. Yeah, uh, sounds good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not so sure. Maybe maybe bear with me here because my ignorance. I'm thinking you know it all depends on what the purpose of the legal system is, right? If the purpose of the legal system is to follow the rules of the law and put the right, you know, put the people, you know, administer punishment as described in the books, then, you know, you're probably right, right? Because I we're more likely. I think making a joke. Well, no, I think it's serious. Because if you think of the legal system as trying to accomplish what it says it's trying to accomplish, that's one thing. But what if the real purpose of the legal system is something like uh, make society feel better about what's happening anyway? I mean, there's at least an argument that could be made that like the justice system doesn't impact crime as much as we think it does right it doesn't slow down the criminals doesn't punishment punish them there's so much recidivism 
recidivism, recidivism, and all of these things. You know, I don't know. If you cross your eyes a little bit, you might be able to say, like, I don't know that it really makes that big a difference. I think it does, but maybe it makes less of a difference than we think. And maybe the real reason we do it is, yeah, sure, it makes a difference, but really it just makes us feel better. I don't know. If, if that's the case, then maybe some of these rules have a hidden purpose of fostering or pursuing that goal. I don't know if that makes any sense. I obviously haven't thought about this that much. No. I you mean, the, the, the dynamic you're talking about definitely makes sense. I just don't, you know, I haven't thought about it before. I think you would enjoy some of the law and economics scholarship that's out there. Law and economics? Or would I start? Uh, Gary Becker wrote on this. There is a textbook, Law and Economics. There's probably <laughs> several textbooks. So Gary Becker sounds familiar. He was an economist or a lawyer? No, for some possibly reason, both. Yeah, for some reason, I think of it when you bring up his name, I think economist. Let me write this down. I'll look did this you up. Get a, did you get a, a master's in economics? Oh, me? No, okay. I didn't. But I did take the law and economics class with the law and economics textbook. And it made the case that the law is typically set up to do the most economically rational thing, which seemed unlikely. But that, uh, surprisingly, that seems to be the case more often with common law than actual statute. It's, yeah, it's a big theory, especially in tort law. So tort law is in large part about when something goes wrong, who should have to pay for it. And of course, that's classic thing in which economics frameworks are useful. But you have to be kind of heartless to be like, oh, yes, I know this person suffered horribly through no fault of their own. But really, it makes economic sense for them to bear some of the cost. Yeah, right? And so I think the justice system bends a bit to make some of those scenarios a little less heartless, right? To deal with those some of those scenarios a little less heartlessly. Mm-hmm. Even Certainly if, that's one of the purposes of juries. Yeah. Right. Oh, good point. Yeah. And prosecutorial discretion. Hmm. I don't know. Who said it was messy? Right. All four of us say it's messy. Hmm. You know, reality's messy. Is it? Or are we just too stupid to see the real underlying patterns? That feels like a testable prediction we'll have data on shortly. No, even, even if there are underlying patterns, we're still too stupid to see it. It's, that's going to make it messy for us. Yeah, agreed. There, that's like the definition of messy, right? <laughs> so either there are patterns, either there are no patterns and it's messy for us, or there are patterns and we can't see them and it's messy. Either way. Well, I mean. Get a dust buster. Humans are complicated creatures, and there's there's been a lot of effort gone into to understanding them and predicting them, and and there's there's we're still far away from having a unified model of humanity. So no matter no matter what anyone tells you, as soon as you know, if as soon as you start feeling cocky about it, all we know and all the cool stuff that we've learned, and it is cool. Um, just remember though, like you spend one third of your life lying down with your eyes closed. And no one really knows why. <laughs> but if you stop doing it, you'll die. Will you? See, I don't think you know whether you will or won't. We just, people have gone weeks without sleeping, you know, by various means and been fine, fine. Not only alive, but like no damage. Fine. I don't believe that. That seems impossible. Pretty sure 11 days is the one I know about. So No el- mental problems? 
No, I mean, you know, with there was no a recovery in, period, with no immediate mental problems, or with no lasting. Mental oh, that's problems. a good point. I don't, I don't, I didn't follow it very long, but like after a few days of recovery, they were they were fine, so as far as anyone could tell. Started to hallucinate on less than that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll hallucinate and you'll do make bad choices and, <laughs> and all kinds of bad things while while you're very sleepy. All kinds uh -huh. of bad, but no lasting damage apparently. You're right. I don't know if there's been follow through. Well, but my impression is that in terms of, of physiology. You know, a lot of what we do when we sleep is known, and we do different things when we're, our body chemistry does different things when we're sleeping than when we're awake. So, you know, we know something about why we sleep, and, and Dr. Alexander has certainly opined on possible reasons for why we dream. I mean, those are just suppositions, but, but they, they, there's, there's, they make some sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I buy, we have no clue why we sleep. You may not fully understand it, but I think we have... Some degree of understanding. We're looking up information here. Yeah, yeah. I just Googled it. It doesn't seem like it'll kill you. They're like, they're really trying to tell you that it'll kill you, but they say things like, you're much more likely to have an accident and stuff like that. But I think if you can make it through the, yeah, like, I don't, that's that's my understanding. I haven't looked into the sleep research well, in a few years. Still have I, it still like something you test with animals. Um, yeah, it's a good point. I've only, I've only read about the tests with humans. Let's set up extremely cruel experiment. <laughs> Which IRB board will we apply to? <laughs> I'll be your IRB board. Badge. Kayla, you've identified me now. I was flying oh, under no. the radar. There's someone with the name John here. Uh, I mean, how many people were named John, really? Several million. Really? <laughs> yes. I thought, I thought you were the only one. Nope. <laughs> nope. There's, uh, there's the only one at this table, and this is the entire universe at the moment. Oh, okay. Wow, well, you're so focused. That <laughs> and the lab rats, which deserve our respect and admiration, uh, according to this button I'm wearing that I picked up at Meetups Everywhere in Boston this year. Nice. They, they have certainly made sacrifices for the well-being of humanity. Yeah. We Maybe. should thank them for this and continue accepting their sacrifices. Raise a glass. Agreed. Agreed. Keep some awake. Maybe lack of sleep makes you a better, a bad judge. I'm trying to think of all the time, like trying to think of an, an activity that you would do better in a sleep deprived state. It can be disinhibiting. So like if you are normally overly shy, maybe sleep deprivation would help you in social situations. You can help you cause problems. That's interesting. Your goal is to cause problems. Mm. Well, if traditional cultures would use sleep deprivation often combined with hallucinogens for religious rituals and things to mark occasions or if you were struggling with some issue in your, your life, which connects pretty well to Scott Alexander's theory mm -hmm. on the on how people could get lasting, uh, get substantial changes in their in the course of their life from even one dose of certain hallucinogens. The theory being that uh, you're stuck in some sort of local maximum, but there is some global maximum that is hard to find because you're at the top of this small little hill and you see this mountain off in the distance with no sense of how to get there. And so in theory, anything that a, um, 
anything that would lower your intuitions, lower your global priors to let you see past that you weren't previously considering could benefit from some focused application of sleep deprivation. I, I don't think like just uh, getting four hours of sleep a night for two months is the, the kind of thing that you would want, but taking someone who is otherwise healthy and well-rested and putting them in an altered state has has long cultural history. Yeah, time proven for sure. Um, raves. <laughs> yes, unironically, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean it ironically. Um, cool. All right, well, speaking of sleeplessness, <laughs> I've got to drive. I want to thank you for that hosting That was a this. professional transition, sir. You like that? <laughs> yes, very good. Excellent. I I need to go, but thanks. This has been great. Uh, I, I'd like to, you know, hopefully start coming to more of these here in the city. It's a bit of a drive for me, but uh, it's interesting. Where do you live? Annapolis. Oh. Yeah. Baltimore may be closer to you. I do. I go to the Baltimore ones. There's not one in College Park that I'm going to go to their meetup next weekend. So I'll be there. And um, But but it's interesting how the different groups have different, um, I don't know, personalities maybe? And, they're you know... Um, well, tell us off the record how you feel about the personality differences between D.C. and Baltimore. Uh, well, this is, I think there's different locations, so different people. That's more of uh, the folks at the Baltimore group are, are most like college kids or like recently graduated, although, you know, with ex- plenty of exceptions. But there's a, there's a big core of, this is more like a big city feel, like lots of urban vibe, while, uh, you know, also more varied in terms of how recently they were in school, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also calling us old. I'm calling us old. Yes. <laughs> First person, plural. Thank well, you. Mario, if you haven't signed up for our mailing list, you can find it and a survey that will get you on it at tinyearl.com slash DCACX. Really? Hang on. Let me write that down. Say that one more time. <laughs> tinyearl.com, tinyurl.com slash DCACX. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's one of the other differences is, you know, there's so many s- different sub communities. So this is an ACX community sort of, you know, I guess, uh, branched out from like Scott Alexander's blogs. Mm-hmm. And the one in Baltimore I go to is a less wrong. Uh, I don't know what to call it. Focused, branched, whatever. Yeah. At least that's what they have in the name. And I think that's part of the difference in, in personality as well. It is. And it's nice to have a mix is my real point. We also have a less wrong group in DC that we collaborate pretty closely with, but have different, it's nice to have different focuses and uh, to have uh, focuses more on instruction and uh, dojo type trainings. And ours focuses more on social and grazing over various topics. And that, that division of labor works well. Yeah. Plenty of overlap, though. So oh, plenty yes. Of, and most people who go to one will also go to also go to the, the others. Yeah, exactly. I think if you enjoy the one, you'll enjoy the other as well. And mm-hmm. like I said, it's nice to have that, that mix. So oh. awesome. Thanks again for having us. See you guys next time. Yep, I can hear. Oop. There we go. That's better. Feel like introducing yourself? Do you want to use a pseudonym? Uh, Michael. <laughs> yes, there we go. Perfect. And ACX. You so, were uh, you have access to some lore. I am yeah. curious about lore. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so we got started here in DC uh, six, seven years ago when okay. Scott first announced the ACX everywhere the first time. Yep. A guy named Robbie was 
posted on the forum like, ah, I'd love to help organize it, but I don't have a place to host. And I had this this apartment downtown in DC. And I said, look, I'm at a convenient location. We have a big rooftop deck. Awesome. I'm happy to, to put in this. And I thought we'd get like six people to show up. It's super awkward for two hours. <laughs> and then they go home and I can say, well, I did my part. Right, totally. And that first time we got like 60 to 80 people showed up. Wow. And we're like, fuck, this is a thing. And we did one every month. We got Occasionally do additional activities, but I hosted one of those every month for for 35 months in a row. And month 36 was was March of 2020. So I just missed getting my three-year chip. Bam. It happened and shut everything down. And then everything got shut down for a while. There, there were some disputes about when to start back up, but we got going, you know, early 2021 or so, mostly outside first. And then, and then we've been doing it ever since. Awesome. That sounds great. No, I also heard there's more lawyers in this in this meetup than many an occupation yeah hazard. but that's there's people that like to argue and are, are trained in defending their point right yeah. and that that has to be good in terms of rationality when you think about it on some level it goes back and forth i bet <laughs> <laughs> no i heard you guys party a little more here too than uh, most of the other ones were years that there's a, i insist on a firm two drink minimum the other organizers don't let me actually enforce this but but i tell new people that in hopes that they comply absolutely it does loosen it up no i no i worked at restaurants for a really long time so yeah drinking I taught English in, in Mexico for two years, and my Spanish got a lot better after two drinks. And I noticed this for a while, and I went to some of my other English years. I said, you, you guys ever notice that, like, he's like, yeah, no, and my students' English gets a lot better after two drinks. Too. <laughs> after four, it gets much worse, but, yeah. but there's this kind of happy medium in there. It's awesome. People get a little uninhibited. I put out, for a while, I was actually putting out the cheaper whiskey in the hopes of saving money. People weren't drinking as much of it, and it annoyed me. <laughs> wow. So it's like a, they probably didn't know the labels, no, or they, maybe... It's one of those like, double blind almost. <laughs> it, it, it is kind of no. It's because run this other discussion group and this. I used there used to be this and my my therapist, my liquor store, and my barber were all on this one block, so I could really have an efficient afternoon when I went there. Absolutely. And one day I walk in, and I noticed there's the whiskey that I buy. Then there's the like the nicer one, and it's on sale, and it's only like five bucks more. I'm like okay, we'll we'll try this good stuff. Like well yeah, we'll see. This is this is worth it. And uh, we bring it home, and like normally we drink like three quarters of a bottle. We just kill that bottle. Like it's gone. And I'm like okay, people seem to like this, and I so I buy a couple more. And I noticed that we are consistently drinking like one and a half, where we used to be drinking wow a bottle. And the label's a little bit different, but I don't think. You don't notice what your brain does. Like, this is better. And the thing about whiskey is huh. the more that you drink, the better it tastes. Uh-huh. And uh, then after a while, that sale ran out. And it's was like, well, so I'll buy some of this other stuff. And I bring that back. And I just take one sip like, this is swill. I can't have this anymore. Uh, you got used to the goods. Yeah. Good stuff. It's hard to go back to not, right. nice things. It's hard to go back to not nice things. Uh, percent. No, on a treadmill, right? You're yeah. like, I deserve this. <laughs> no, we were talking about science fiction inside, which was awesome. And yeah, no, we were, you and I were bemoaning the fact of hard to find good sci-fi these books these days. Yeah, I feel there's just not a lot being written in that. That's, or, I'm sure it's being written, but I'm not finding out about it. Yeah. And, you know, like I, there's a few fantasy offers I follow from that I learned about, you know, when I was growing up mm-hmm. and you know they're like you know well theoretically george r, r. martin but yeah uh, we're patrick roth we're yeah we were so bemoaning. like abercrombie yeah, yeah no totally and, i like abercrombie yeah. right the blade itself and he and puts out one book a year and but like the science fiction guys like the people i read are all mostly older and then there's just not as much of the newer stuff and a lot of the guys that are doing it are, are doing kind of ya stuff that just i don't yeah. really care about no 100 percent. no i don't and then yeah I no Heinlein for me, Asimov, like I mean Le Guin. I love Octavia Butler as well. Like with the Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. I'm a little bit of a doomer. Like I'm an optimistic doomer. 
trying to be, but like, See, yeah. Actually, I, I'm fairly optimistic in my projections what I think will happen, but mm. I like to read the grim dark. Yeah, <laughs> totally. We were let's talk about let's get the the water uh, the uh, the wind up girl. Yeah. Like I don't know, we could just I don't know what's your uh, what's your pitch if you were gonna try to get people listening so, to this to write the climate change world that focuses on mood and the sensation that you're really there and creating a feeling, and that feeling is sticky. Like this is a world that is too hot and too crowded and just stuff isn't working right. And it's kind of gross. That feeling just permeates through the whole book. Totally. And it, it maybe doesn't sound like a great, like read this book, you'll feel gross, but in the best way. No, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, no, it is like stick. You said that when we were talking inside and I was just like, damn, that is such a great word. Cause it is like a visceral feeling. Like there are books that do give you that it's, I love it, but yeah, no, like you said, post climate change. In Asia as in well. Asia. Yeah, set in Thailand. Written yep. while the author was in Thailand. And I think sick for a lot of it and just a little like, I think a little feverish with-, with <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but the culture, like the ghosts, like the spirits, like, and no, the government, the environmental ministry, like who's the hero, who's not, like it's- Yeah, the it, heroes of the book commit genocide at the end of the book. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh man, that's that was- I apologize. Yeah, no, it's- <laughs> It's all good. It's no, man, that is, that is so great. But, but no, I mean, I really do love books. That, like I must like Moby Dick is great. Like if, if you've ever had something in your life that you pursued past the point where it was wise to do so and kind of lost all like Moby Dick will speak to you and any book that can really like whatever that, that one feeling is, it doesn't really matter. But if you felt it and you like conjures it up, like that's, that's what really speaks to me. And that's what, that's the sort of thing I look for in my literature. 100%. No, that's the thing with art. Like, I'm an artist and like, no, great art makes you feel something. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what that that feeling <laughs> is, but no, I want it to hit, <laughs> you know? Hey, give me one second. We got a joiner. Check, 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 check. Hello, hello. hello. How you doing? You, well, you can introduce yourself or not. You can use a pseudonym, made up name, or you, we can just talk like whatever works. Your pretend internet name. <laughs> <laughs> Zero XDC. There, there's zero cool, man. You got zero cool. <laughs> there we go. There it is. Uh, we were talking sci-fi, but uh, also ACX. Like I don't know, ACX origin story. Like Mike was telling his. I'm very glad because the my ACX name has been Cassander for a long time, and there are two names I use for things on the internet. One of them is Cassander, and I'm very glad I use that one because the other one I use is Stud Beef Pile. <laughs> and I've had like adult conversations with people where people have referred to me as Cassander, and that's fine. But those conversations would have been more difficult if it was like, "So, Stud, like, tell me." <laughs> awesome. Would you say you your attitude to life be different if you hadn't read this blog? Well, the funny thing is, never been a huge fan of Scott's blog. I was always a fan of the kind of community that grew up around him. Fair enough. Um, there's, a, there's a great line, actually, in the New York Times piece that we're, it's not real fans of around here, but uh, there's a great line by, uh, by, by David Friedman who says, you know, there are actual plumbers and actual rocket scientists in this community, and they talk to each other, and they both have interesting things to say. And I have met that plumber and that rocket scientist and David Friedman and at his house, actually. And they all have interesting things to say. And like, it's just such a, like this, this really just wide variety of people, much wider than, than most of us, I think, encounter in our daily lives. That I agree. Come together and just have interesting conversations. And, you know, Scott has some, some pieces I really like, but, but that was never the real thing that drew me to the community. It was no, that this, this, this guy has managed to attract this, this super high quality, you know, yep. just, pool of people around him and and that's what i want to get in and and that's what i've always kind of sought to recreate with with my meetups is that feeling of this is like the this is like the ssc open thread but in person and there's whiskey 
Totally. Thoughts? That's really good to know. Is there any common denominator trait that you have found in these people? Um, well, they like whiskey. But, mm -hmm. yeah. but, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's a willingness to take ideas seriously, but not personally. It's, it's, you can walk into that room and say, you know what? I think we should kill your mother. And people say, okay, well, what are your arguments for that? Like, you're not going to convince them they should kill their mother. But they'll sit down and kind of have that conversation. Like, maybe this crazy person has an interesting take on this. I've never heard, of, right? Let's see, what he is, let's see where he's going with this. Probably a utilitarian in some weird way, but let's find out. <laughs> people sit there and listen to you and, and hear you out. You know, and it for the online point, it's, it's a community that has relatively thick skin. People don't think things too personally. It's, yeah, you can go in there and like, yeah, I think you're being an asshole. People go, okay, well, I'll see it. You know, I'll think about that and maybe try to update. Or maybe I'll decide that you're wrong. Like, but that that's not, you know, people don't get offended by shit. They will take those ideas seriously and run with them and think about them. And, and it, you know, we're all, we're all friends at the end of the day. Yeah. So. And there's something you mentioned about the comment section. I think there's some social norms in the comment section that, that translate into the real life meetups, like that the ad hominem attacks, right? Like yeah. you can talk shit about the ideas, like this idea is bad, this and this or whatever, mm -hmm. but like you're a piece of shit. I mean, yeah, that's there. And then the community like is reinforcing that norm, right? right. Like, and and also due to like maybe talk about neurodivergent populations, like someone will probably say this is not okay, and they're gonna have backup from everyone. Yeah, I remember, right. I remember one time we did have kind of like an army wander in and get terrified and wander out. And, uh, <laughs> and, like, he'd come, he'd come in and, and gave a very kind of bog standard argument of defensive school choice. And I said something like, "Here, like Meeseeks will come tell you about it." And Meeseeks is very Catholic. He has six kids. They're all in DC charter schools because the DC public schools are awful, despite spending thirty thousand bucks a year per student. And he is mean about his defense of public schools. Like he will say, "Like, why do you want to hurt my kids?" And like he will go after you for. Meeseeks didn't even come over, and the guy says, "That's like a very Republican argument." I said, "Yeah, I suppose, you know, whatever." And you know, there's another advantage, which is it kind of takes any concerns about indoctrination out, and that kind of everyone gets to pick what their kids learn, and there's no kind of argument about that. And he just very literally just nopes out of that conversation, like just kind of like literally puts <laughs> hands up in the air like this and goes like, "I'm gone," and then just walks out the door. And like I was the good cop in that conversation. <laughs> like I was like, "Okay," and then Meeseeks is gonna come over and be mean, and then like. Like back, like that was the plan, and that, like, uh, that was like that was the guy's first time there. He'd been there for like twenty minutes, and then he's gone. But usually that doesn't happen. Yeah, right. Um, no, that's the only time I can think of that that's ever really happened. That is awesome. Oh my god. <laughs> no, it is. It's also there's jargon. I mean, not too much, I think, but like there are some terms like like. But that's every community, right? Yeah. That's every. And I've always tried to minimize that. Like my original co-host was a guy named Robbie Raman, and for years made it like, we're going to make this like a Scott discussion group where we're talking about the latest post or whatever. And I, I subtly sabotaged his efforts for years because I didn't want it to be just that. I wanted it to be more, uh, you know, more than that. And people will still talk about that stuff. And, you know, we're, what do you think about Moloch? And, you know, so on and so forth. But totally. it's, it's not just that. And, you know, I've often said, like, I hate the word rationalist. I don't describe myself as a rationalist. Yeah. I think the less wrongers are, are too mean and the, the EAs are too nice. And I try to find this nice middle ground. <laughs> but, uh Fair enough. No, that makes a lot of sense. I used to call myself a rationalist, but not, yeah, not, mm -hmm. not so much anymore. What's the reason behind it? I just think it's a, such a pretentious, like I'm pretty smug and pretentious and I think rationalist is a bit too far. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's a claim. I just don't know. I don't think I, I thought I would might get there and that's why I was okay with it. And now I realize I will not get to this ideal. And well, it's the Hayekian line, like the curious tasks of economists to explain to people how literally they understand the world. I feel like if you really want to be rationalist about things, you have to appreciate how irrational you actually are and just accept that 
no, you're not, you know, data and you're not going to be, and you got to deal with the fact that you're not. And it's like the biology is the biology, but like, I think humans are post-rationalizing now. Like, I think that's very strong. And I think there's a lot of things you can do with that, but I think it is much more of a post-rationalization that we do. Like, we don't know. We are, we are rationalizing more than we are, you know, like reasoning about things. But being less wrong, I still believe in that as a, as like an aspiration. It is an aspiration. Like that, that I think is important. That's being rationalist that I am, but like rationality, like I think I can get to that is like, no, like, and I think maybe when I was was like earlier, I thought I I had a better chance at that. (laughs) It's it's a goal to aspire for and it's a good goal, a worthy goal. Hello, hello. Would you like to jump in? We're going to get cozy. (laughs) I can scoot over. Some dead. just Just a hair. Some dead air. Yeah, that's okay. I'll, I'll filter it out. He's just going to chop up what we say and make something new. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. This is real world. Is this, is, this a black, is this a blackmail ring? Right? This is opt in. I think it's Check. been all yeah. this time. <laughs> well, Dan, you come to the first meeting for, for ACX? You've been coming a long time. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It had been going on a while. Okay. Yeah. It's 2018, though. All right. Yeah, we, there's some lore. We were trying to accumulate some lore, like not blackmail material, but like, you know, nerds love lore. Like I'm a nerd. I love lore. That's like, true. you know, like lore is one of the things. So well, the foundation of all nerd humor is I know something you don't know. And that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're just kind of just ACX stories. Like, I don't it's a boring name, but it's probably not might just be that like because that's that's what it is. It's more of like I'm just think of what I do here is like I'm going to try to facilitate. And also, I'm doing this for myself because I want to hear stories and people talking about stuff at ACX meetups where I am not there. Because I find that really interesting. And some of it's going to be whatever, but like a lot of it's going to be really good in my experience. Like I just, I just have great conversations at ACX. We were talking about this a little earlier. So yeah, yeah but there is no real purpose for me in this aside from just making it and seeing what happens. Um, yeah. yeah. No, people have asked me like why I keep doing this, you know, yeah. cost me all this money and all this time and all this pain in the ass and you people trash my house every month. And mm. but it's, I don't, there's nowhere in DC. I regularly have better conversations and we have awesome people like Dan who show up and bring food that I don't have to buy. And, and, you know, we just have this Good on you. community. And, yeah, no, that's true. Just don't tell them about the child sacrifices. No, that's, that's, Damn it. That's, that's, that's day two stuff. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. He's not an initiate. No. He's still a cadet. <laughs> Somebody told me. Discretion, man. Also, no. science fiction. I want to hear science fiction stories, but no, child sacrifice. If that's where we're going, that's where we're going. <laughs> Sacrifice to Moloch, don't you? <laughs> we all. How else do you keep him at bay? <laughs> Is that not the point of unsung? Did I misinterpret something? <laughs> no, but it. Uh, but yeah. No, it's nice to go to a place where people have read books. <laughs> See, thank you. That is for me. That is that was so refreshing for yeah. me. Yeah. You know, not you know books they didn't read at gunpoint. <laughs> Yeah, to pass the test or to, to do the thing. Yeah. Is that rare in DC? I thought this city would attract a lot of earnest nerds that would read all the time. It does, then it crushes them under its heel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that makes, yeah. They come here idealistic and then... We beat it out of them. Yeah. America. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Now, DC is a weird... Grew up in Silicon Valley definitely been an adjustment coming to dc it's 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 
the culture is the culture gap is wider than you think it would be because you know like how different can like coastal cities be but there's just a very different attitude toward i've often like dc is a very conservative and like small c conventional like you do the dumb thing kind of place and there's so much less like you go to california and like yeah i do like what do you do and like well i you know i like grow crystals that align your chakras and people are like cool you mean Make that work for you. Awesome. And like, yeah, no one believes in that, but, <laughs> but, but it, you're doing your thing. And that, that's, you do that in DC. People just look at you like you shat on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. What yeah. would you say if you go to the average cafe in DC and you're trying to eavesdrop on a conversation, like what do you take away from the city's aspiration? So I'll give you an example. If you go to New York, the typical eavesdropping would result into, oh, the city is into making money. Mm-hmm. If you go to LA, you would realize the city is into getting famous. If you go to Berkeley, it's like, oh, the city is into trying to be a better human. Shay, <laughs> but DC is about power. Like Hollywood for ugly people really is accurate. It's the same sort of conversations <laughs> you get in Hollywood, but instead of making movies, it's about running the country, but running the country in a very abstract sense of like, pushing your particular agenda, whether you are a, a congressman or a lobbyist or a you know, think tanker or whatever, it's, it's like obsessing over your little area of policy and, uh, and one industry town. And that, that in the same way that Hollywood is a one industry town and, and that kind of shapes, shapes everything. It kind of just radiates out from, from Capitol Hill and the White House and, and goes from there. Yeah, and as someone who's into those things, like, yeah. Yeah, it can be good for me. Like, I can have conversations about defense policy with random people, which I wouldn't get if I lived in Seattle, you know? Yeah. But, but it can also be kind of stultifying in a way that, like, in California, you could be doing weird shit and everyone's like, cool, you do you. Yeah, I grew up in Maryland, far from the D.C. area, and... I've lived in the D.C. suburbs for the past 15 years, but I still feel like a tourist. <laughs> um, I feel like a stranger in a strange land. <laughs> yeah. I still feel like when I come in here, I'm not a D.C.ite, like a, the whole political thing or, or the D.C., you know, hangers on or however you want to say it thing is just like I wouldn't know about it. I think, I think I've sensed that it wouldn't be me, and so I've stayed out of it, so... I'm just a hick suburbanite or something. (laughs) God, for a second place called Maryland. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The boondocks from here, right? The the outer outer territories. Uh, Oh, man. Yeah, no, driving cross country was kind of a trip, but also, I mean, it was basically what I expected. So, but here, I I went here, I came here once as a kid and uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know the history. I like reading like the books, but no, the history and the, the place and just being... Yeah, I don't know. Being at the mall, being at the reflection pool, being at the Lincoln Memorial or just these places. Like, no, they're they're like these mythic symbols on some level for me. Just they're probably if I mythic symbols. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm, and probably they would lose power for me if I was here for a month, right? Because like, I would they would just become normal, but that's still Yeah, it was yeah. it was very it hit me hard actually yesterday when I was when I was checking all out. So yeah. I remember my when my mom I was talking to my mom like when I first moved to DC and I said something, yeah, like I was up at DuPont Circle or something. She's like, I've heard of that place. Like, <laughs> Yep. Hello again. Hello. When I first moved to DC, my mom just told me I would be murdered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going. I was having technical difficulties earlier with all of this and now it's getting... How about you switch with me and I'll fix this? <laughs> Sorry. I'm bringing a table next time. I usually have one in California, and I was like, I don't need one. I'll be able to make it work. And that was a really stupid thing. Cool. Still going. You see hardcore here? Like, yeah. Yeah. you were talking about, we 
I don't know if you guys could talk just for me, like I'll be listening. You were talking about like the average peoples you have show up, like in my experience with ACX is like, yeah, it's often like smaller numbers, but you sound like this place looks like yeah, it's the distribution, right? You're going to be like on the very high end of the distribution here. Is that, does that make, does that sound correct? Yeah. I mean, we've always had a variety of events. Some of them have more attendance than others, but, but yeah, the routine kind of downtown DC ACX meetup is like 25, 30 people. It lasts from like seven till midnight ish. Sometimes it goes a little later. After midnight, you start making people up clean up. So a lot of people skedaddle after that. But uh, yeah, um, and I would be interested, Andrew, if you, you can compare the bigger meetups to like the ones where four people. Um, okay. Yeah. Which it, is good in itself, but it's a different vibe. Is and like the ecosystem, right? That it exists in. I mean, I'll say one thing maybe as a meta that Sky told me. He said he sees like hard, like founder effects type situations in cities and then also he mentioned something about the city culture um for new york for example they have a treasurer hong kong they collect dues like these types of things right where the culture of the city kind of is apparent yeah and i think he's told me about tokyo has like several elected offices that run their like, like <laughs> that makes right no structure hierarchy yeah <laughs> you know like totally makes sense hello what happened in sacramento and some of the other small ones i've talked to people about it, the Sacramento group had two people, I think, or three that were showing up a lot early and uh, they were really good about, hey, we're hanging out. Hey, we're hanging out. Hey, we're hanging out. And then it got to the point six, seven, eight, something like that. Um, and then it became so good. We knew each other so well. It was just like a tight, hardcore friend group who also talked about like ACX stuff. But the thing with that is, I think it's a trap. The in-group thing where you, you don't mean to be talking about like history with the group, but then you do end up talking about that a lot. And then people who don't have access to that, right. They're not going to be, that's not going to be yeah, interesting. Inside baseball. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent that. So, so I think that is a trap. Uh, Even at DSL, we've noticed over the years, like it's, it's a lot of the people that were in that open thread community, but it's a lot of the people that were in that open thread community. And it's, it's several hundred kind of active users, but mm -hmm. You know, there's the the more active ones and people kind of know one another and we don't get as much churn as we did when we were there and we have a lot of the same conversations and we've had some internal discussions like, is this like, there's nothing we can really do about it, but it's like, is, yeah, totally. what should we be doing? And this is like, why do things not feel the same or why do they feel different? And, and that's something we noticed having those new people come in like that, like, ah, fresh meat, you know, like made a difference. I've been trying to do that. The ACX brand in Sacramento is not strong. I've been throwing, just calling them generic nerd meetups often use that that's right and that's nerd like nerd parties no yep. dancing and no singing <laughs> i i cook so i've been doing barbecue actually just, just calling it a nerd barbecue like brisket and pork butt and all these things i'm chill for that well i'm, I'm gonna come maybe come back and yeah we'll Brace see what happens <laughs> i'm trying to figure out what people are interested in because for me i think this is a common thing but changing behavior changing environment is actually the easiest way to change human behavior so i think changing the environment really matters a lot and I'm just been experimenting with that. Like I have a nice backyard where I live now. It's not my house, but like, so yeah, backyard barbecue, right? I mean, also then if you try to make it a salon, right? Intellectual salon, backyard barbecue, like, mm. I don't know. I would love to hang out in that all the time, basically. Yeah, <laughs> so great. solve your, solve your own problem. Right. So it's kind of like that, but I was trying to do it with ACX, but the brand wasn't enough, but then nerd barbecue was too broad. There isn't like... <laughs> This is for me, right? Then it's too much. So it's like there. I think there's some <laughs> perfect medium that maybe I will get closer to. Like that's all I can hope. But but no, you need enough identity to bring people together, but not enough that it shuts out <laughs> like new people. Yeah. Like if that, I, I don't. I had an event announcement that mentioned vegetarian food, and someone contacted me 
apparently under the impression it was a group of vegans. And I was like, <laughs> okay. On the one hand, I want this person to come. On the other hand, is she going to be offended when I start eating meat? <laughs> <laughs> 100%. No, who was it for? Right? Like that's the that's one of the fundamental questions like community or gatherings anything like that. Like Re- people want to show up where it's Rebecca for them. Rebecca Friedman was very apologetic when she was cooking for the DSL meetup and is very apologetic posting a thing asking if people had allergies to thing. I'm like, "Why are you sorry for that?" He's like, "Well, you know, this community it's kind of like sticks is that well we 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 say what we think and we're not like we're kind of a sharp elbow about it like you're trying to make food for people like that's a legitimate question to ask one of our community values is not respecting allergies (laughs) that's that's our core belief is you will eat peanuts and you will like it allergies are a hoax (laughs) perfect no let's get on yeah no we'll definitely leave that leave that Oh, man. But no, you like effective altruists, right? Like, how do you like, there's so much overlap, ACX, less raw, like all these things, right? Like, oh, there is. Who is oh. it for? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What have I joined? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great though, when that's not set, right? And you constantly have to re-examine the evolution. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. And uh, like, we actually got some new organizers in lately that are, one of whom really wants to kind of like broaden out and try to attract a somewhat different crowd not that she's dissatisfied the current crowd, but she's a marketer well, by trade and she's like i think more people will like yeah. this and we should try to reach them and i'm like yeah cool we'll see how that goes maybe it'll work so maybe much. it won't so just type like, but uh where the mic is and you probably want to be within that but that's a worthy experiment okay. um yeah it sounds like my mic's working yeah i would go a little closer maybe like there we go now i can hear you all right Hello, great. welcome yeah. thank you yeah. thank you we're just reminiscing, talking about culture, ACX, people, like different takes, like why we like it. I don't know. It's just a, it's just an ACX stories. You're here. You're welcome. That's about it. <laughs> You've been coming for, to DC for a long time too. How long? Oh, it? yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started, I mean, over a year and a half before the pandemic. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then I started up again sort of after the pandemic yeah. shutdowns ended. So yeah, it has been a long time. So yeah, I guess it's been almost five years, although... Not the whole five years. Because it's been longer pandemic. since the pandemic than before the pandemic. Mm, yeah. So it might, about, might be about even. I think it's about even. Flat. I think we're noticing that we'd crossed. We started in March or April, something like that. So it's, it's what was it 2017? Yeah. So I think it has been longer. Like since then, like since the beginning of the pandemic. So okay. it's like okay. March of 2020. Okay. Maybe that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was there, I mean, we, we just did Zoom calls and stuff, but I mean, it's obviously not the same. So, yeah, I mean. did a couple online things. Yeah. I wasn't a fan of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and we started in-person stuff outside relatively soon, like late 2020. But attendance was really low for, then we did it outside in February in, in like in the winter and then attendance got really low. Even like we were out there, <laughs> we were outside by the fire pit. And it actually wasn't that bad. Like I rented a heat lamp and it was fine, but. Uh, yeah. But like, it's hard to convince people like, no, come out in January. It'll be fun. It's not that cold. We swear. Like people didn't believe us. Yeah. That problem with meetups. Like I picked the hottest day of the summer this last summer, yeah. three times in a row. Like I nailed it three times for these oh, events. I was showing. Sacramento gets toasty. It, yeah, yeah. It was 100 and 106 one day, I think. And like, no, that was just bad luck. And we went inside, thank God, but it was tight, but it worked. Um, I but, guess yeah. just to let the podcast audience know, we're recording this from DC. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's hot in the summer, but it's too cold in the winter just to sort of <laughs> sit outside talk yeah. i mean i mean this isn't florida this is yeah without a fire pit yeah, or, or heat lamps or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. uh, no someone was telling me i'd have been john actually that yeah before the air conditioning like for the british 
Washington D.C. was hazard pay. Yeah, I believe. <laughs> like, it. Yeah, you got hazard yeah. pay for being it's here because the malaria. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like no, they got they got hazard pay. So yeah. you know, my opinion is it was not that hot this summer though. They were saying you know it's it was the hottest summer ever. Maybe in other places it was. I think it was on the cool side this summer. Here. We definitely had a few mild winters in a row. Like there was no, I don't think it's still once last year. No, it didn't. Oh, yeah. But what I understand, the average for DC is every five years we have like a big snowstorm more. And every five years we have a winter with no snow. That's like the normal thing. But I think we've had a couple winters in a row where there was not much snow. So. I mean, I grew up in Menlo Parks, and yeah. zip code in America that's most often in the 70s, so I just find the weather intolerable everywhere. Yeah. It's the famous um, Mark Twain quote about the coldest winter he ever had was a summer San in San Francisco. Yeah. No, I've ended up with a lot of t-shirts going to concerts because you leave Sacramento and you get to like Berkeley or the Greek and it's literally like 50, 60 degrees difference. <laughs> and then you're like, I'm freezing. And so I'm going to buy t-shirts and just layer. <laughs> hopefully yeah. that, yeah, hopefully that's going to work. In Vegas, it's 120 degrees outside, but 60 degrees in all the casinos. You need to bring a sweater with you. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I don't know. We were talking about science fiction earlier. There's just, I don't know, we're all, we've all been this for a while, but the two of the people that were on this first, actually, this was their first experience with ACX was actually this particular meetup tonight. Yeah, we had a lot of new people tonight. That's awesome. I'm curious how to do that for myself uh, with the the group in SAC, but no, it's beautiful to see. So, yes, great questions. So, but yeah, no, this is my tribe. This is my nerd tribe. Being at meetups, big ones, it's the closest I get to, I think, how most people feel in church. You know, I don't know why, but it is because it's, it's that that community. It's like you don't really go to church for the sermon so much. You go to the bake sale after. You know that that yep. that that aspect to it is is it is it does have that. Like done this meetup in the parking lot across from my house, which is owned by a church. That is Pastor Reverend Jesse Jackson. Oh it's snap! Not, not that Jesse. Ah, Jackson. not that Jesse Jackson. <laughs> He's a different Jesse Jackson who has very strong opinions about that Jesse Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> And had a long conversation with Scott last time he was here about how much he disliked the other Jesse Jackson, which Scott did not seem super comfortable with, but I loved watching. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I mentioned too, that I love about this community, like it doesn't matter how much you think you know about something, someone else could have done a deep dive on that like the month before and like they might disagree with you and might have ridiculously strong arguments. And so you always got to be have some humility, you know, because like someone might not in a way trying to make you look like an idiot or a moron, but it just might happen. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the things we've started doing at DSL meetups is we we have a group poetry composition effort, and and it's, oh. this started as a, started as a whim. I said as a joke to 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 Bean Battleship Bean, the guy that writes the the naval the naval gazing blog. He says something like like you don't just how do you even describe your politics to normal people? And like, do you even talk to normal people? And I, and I kind of, as a joke, I said, well, you know, I think of myself as an American imperialist, which I, which I do. I believe in neoliberal hegemony, but, but no one talks like that. And then, and, and then I said, as a joke, like take up the fat man's burden. So that, at that meetup, one of the guys who come there, like had, I had mentioned this joke to him. He's like, oh, we should write that. Like I like do rewriting of poems for, for fun. I said, okay, we, we can, we can do this. We sat down, we cranked up, take out the fat man's burden and all seven stanzas, you know, send forth the largest breed, you know, go wait in heavy harness while scrawny folks grow wide or wreck the golden arches and herd the world inside. Like, you know, the whole seven stanzas. And, and it was great. And for the last one, we wrote the charge of the one dozen, which was all about our excursion to an aircraft museum. 
where Bean and I kind of sat there and Bean tells people things about planes and then I explain how he's wrong about those things. And Bean actually knows at least as much about aircraft as I do, but we have very different opinions on some things. So we enjoy the back and the forth. One of the lines in this poem was was mocking. Like The story is that Bean and I go there and we start arguing and then everyone else wanders off to go to lunch while we're sitting there arguing about planes. And one of the lines is there, you know, you know I wrote a post which is something that Pete says all the time. And uh, we put it in the post. He says, you know, actually, it's my favorite thing about writing the blog is I get to say that to people. <laughs> and his blog is amazing. And he has a tremendous amount of knowledge about, about military hardware and naval matters. And, you know, we, we talk about these things. And But yeah, it's just, you know, and, you know, we have rocket scientists and plumbers and this incredible array of just people who are passionate about whatever their thing is. And bringing all that one place, you know, breaking the silos of, of industry and whatnot to just cross-connect is, is awesome. And that's what makes it, that's what keeps it fun. Because there's always someone who knows something about something that you don't. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then, yeah, no, we can keep talking. We cannot, but no, I'm just like this a lot. I really appreciate y'all letting me come in here to guests and just setting this up. John was super helpful. And then, yeah, people just playing along and having fun with it. It's been, it's been great. I hope, yeah. We'll see if it turns anything, anything or not, but I already counted as a win. So I want to give you my, I want to get this when it comes out. Oh, every, no, absolutely. No, you will. I'm not sure about naming and stuff, but because we did a lot of work just before with John and other people, just like, yeah, opt-in only all these things, doxing, whatever. As far as I'm aware, no one, yeah, no one had any problem with talking or having any of this be public. So yeah, uh, it will be out and then we'll get to see. (laughs) How many have you done so far? I've done some in SAC, but also some people there, again, were a little bit skeptical. I've done podcasts on a bunch of different things, but this for this, doing this project, this is the first one. So you guys, yeah, makes sense that DC would be the first. And then hopefully we're going to see Philadelphia, New York, Houston, Vegas. So in contact, I organized the meetup in Sacramento now. It's small, but like still trying to do that. So yeah, just I've been reaching out to people and yeah, people are generally... Nerd have concerns. Seems like a great pitch to me. Pardon me. Nerd barbecue seems like a. Great I pitch. thank you. I thought it was. I actually wrote an Emergent Ventures grant for it, and Tyler said no, but I didn't want to <laughs> run that by Kaplan and uh, <laughs> yeah, Robin Hanson. But uh, no, it was probably what badly written, and I probably didn't have enough detail on some things. It's totally fine. But no, like a salon, like barbecue, American salon would probably be a backyard barbecue, right? On some yeah. level, that's one way of imagining it. That's kind of this is a salon, right? On some level, ACX, Absolutely. like it's. Like, I think that's, that's one of the things I love about it. Um, so yeah, just try and, but good food, people will show up for good food when they won't show up otherwise, <laughs> you know? And like, it's just a way of trying to, I think it's half the reason we get people like the DSL meetups have been going for, this will be the third year now. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've refined the process over, we've done, this will be the sixth, maybe the fifth, yeah, the fifth. And refine the process and we keep adding in more food <laughs> <laughs> there we go because we get more people who are cooking it and making it want to contribute and people like want a chance to help out that's actually one of the things i'd recommend about trying to build a meetup is you get other people to do some of the work because people will feel more invested when they've contributed something rather than just showing up and it could be leading a discussion it could be making food it could be cleaning whatever it is just give people an excuse to participate and and they will want to do it and they will feel more invested and then they'll be more likely to bring other people with them and it spirals it spirals up from there that makes and, a lot of sense to me and food is is like the best thing because everyone loves food and everyone you know lots of people like to make food everyone has like the one thing they make that's really good even if they're not a, a great cook otherwise you know and and i'm not a great cook I, 
have a half dozen or so things that I make, and, and that's not very many. But, you know. It's enough. It's enough. <laughs> it's, it's, you can make your one thing or your two things, and then, you know, we have one guy who comes basically just makes bread all week, and it's great, like freshly baked right out of the oven bread. That sounds. And it is three ingredients in it, but it is still great. <laughs> <laughs> no, and breaking bread together, like sharing yeah. salt, right? These are very, very old customs. They're almost like a bond, like a like a compact, like something, this hospitality agreement that you come out to and like sharing food together on some level, like, like there's an obligation implied ancient cultures in that way, right? Just the act of eating with someone, like there is some kind of obligation implied. It, it brings people together in a way that meeting something like, you know, post COVID, we've all done a lot of online stuff and seeing someone's face helps a little bit, but like an email isn't really a, like an email address isn't really a person, a screen name on a, on a form isn't really a person. Once you meet them and shake their hand and like, feel more connected to that person and, you know, and eating with them even more so, I think. And I think that's just like deep, like monkey brain stuff that, you know, we don't really think about it. It doesn't enter the conscious brain, but it's, it's there and it's real. And uh, when we first did the did first DSL meetup, I'm like, this is, this is never gonna, this is never gonna work. Like there's no way. And uh, it wasn't my idea. It was someone else's idea. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to throw myself in and see if I can make this, this happen. And I, you know, I set up the schedule and did all these things. And, and then just people started showing up and all of these, these, these like screen names on a screen all of a sudden real people and you know over the years some of them become very good friends uh, and we, we talk all the time but the glue that keeps it together is the fact that every six months or a year like we get together and hang out and that that's that's enough i have a friend who writes on there i don't generally but no i'll hit you up about this meetup i'd love to just show up because oh, it sounds no and i'll i'll definitely cook some things so <laughs> no the, i i want i worked in restaurants for 20 something years I learned a lot of things. I met a lot of great people. Uh, what did you do in restaurants? Manager sommelier for seven years. And then like Curious job. <laughs> 15 years of like serving and bartending. Like I did that at the beginning. And then I managed to be a sommelier. And then I demoted myself back to serving because the money <laughs> is so much better and the stress is a killer. It's a really thankless job managing restaurants. I'll just throw that out there I, I generally. Think, I have a couple of cousins that are, that are chefs. Yeah. Well, I love going on family vacations with for everyone. But, uh, and yeah. they're great chefs. But yeah, yep. they... That, that seems tough. <laughs> it was, but I just needed intellectual outlet because I was reading a lot and just doing all this stuff. And like some, a lot of people in restaurants have degrees and do stuff you wouldn't expect, but like generally not, but like finding ACX in Sacramento, people had done the reading people where I didn't have to explain myself, you know, where I could reference history or this or that. And like, they would correct me and like, <laughs> nope, got the day wrong on that or, you know, that kind of thing. But like, I, that was for me, that was very valuable because I didn't have access to it go to graduate school or even graduate from college. So, so yeah, for me, I think that's why I value it so much is because it's just, I didn't have it, a type of conversation, like the deep people giving you the benefit of the doubt, also willing to push you like, yeah, making you consider points of view you'd never considered. Like I just, I value it really, really highly. One of my favorite things to do around being actually is to say wrong things about planes because it drives him absolutely mad and he's very easy to nerd snipe and it is so satisfying. To do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But yeah, any, anything to say about ACX that you want? I mean, no pressure, but I mean, yeah, just throwing stuff out there. I mean, I guess the one thing to mention really more from a meetup issue, I mean, there are board games that we've done, including Caplicon. I don't know if that's been mentioned. Uh, uh, no, how did, how did you find that work logistically with the board games, actually? I've tried to do some of them, but yeah, sometimes problematic. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean Brian Kaplan, who's well-known to people in this group had a has an event every year where people play board games this year was at the economics department in george mason and a lot of people from this meetup went and 
I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a nice get together and it's a nice thing we can do together. So, yep. I mean, that's one thing we have here in DC. We're actually, next week we're trying to do just like, we first started doing this, people would sometimes bring board games and the guy that used to do that the most actually just moved to Annapolis and doesn't come as much. It's Paul Brinkley. And, uh, um, but uh, so we're trying it again next weekend just to see kind of how people like it and how that ends up working out if people like mixing i mean it helps when you're large we have a larger group that you can have a room totally doing board gaming one of the things i'm actually working on doing is trying to like you know we have this big 30 person event i have a kind of old victorian house with lots of little rooms and have like one room set aside like we're going to do a structured debate in 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 the dining room and if you want to do that then great then go in there and do that we don't have to because i don't want it to be like a yeah. Like a structured like this is like we're coming and we're doing the thing and then you're going home at like right thirty like it's it's more fun than that but but so people like doing that sort of structure it gives people a way in get to that conversation we've been experimenting with a little bit of that and I want to try to do try to do more like we've been doing a book exchange for a while where people just everyone brings a book and just talks about them and swap books and and that's been going well and uh, yeah no board games I love it I mean I'm kind of stuck in the middle Sacramento is very small and then Berkeley when like especially Scott's there like it's generally at the Rose Garden in like it has been lately at least or it was on Berkeley campus or something and then that's like 100 150 people um and yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to structure right like it's one time like Scott one of them like yeah another speakers right something to organize around that is awesome. But yeah, often just people come for the conversation and they don't want anything getting in the way of their conversations. Yeah. Which, like I said, makes a lot of sense to me. I, so. I, I do run a different discussion group. It's not ACX affiliated at all, but uh, much smaller. It's foreign policy focused. And uh, and that very much is like, nope, we have a topic. We're going to talk about it. We're going to argue about it. And that's, you know, a half dozen or so people. And that's a that's a fun night. But like you couldn't have a board game going on on the side of that. Like it's, right. it's a very different vibe. It's like, we're going to we're gonna sit over here and play Sorry when you guys have <laughs> discussed about whether or not, you know, we, what we should do in Ukraine. Like, it, that would be a little weird. Xi Jinping thought, yes. What do we think about this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All right. All right. I got to call it for a second. Thanks for trying it out. Really okay. appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. And you'll 